Well, dealing with uh, any genealogy, you have some of the same challenges every time. One is just how to pronounce the names. And my dad, who's also a pastor, gave me some good advice many years ago, which I never forgot. He said, just, just act like you know how to pronounce it and pronounce it however you want and nobody will bother to correct you. And I found that, I found that to be quite true over the years. So whether I got everybody's name and everybody's city exactly right, I don't know. But if you know for sure, feel free to correct me. But I suspect all of us are a little bit hesitant in that respect. Another issue that we have when we come to the genealogies, and a much more significant issue though, is how does this profit us? Because we know that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And yet it's not always as clear how one section is profitable when compared against another. So for instance, we read in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then we read that Bila, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhaba. And it's not as immediately clear how the second is profitable to us though the first is very obvious. Well, we see a couple of things uh, in common with all genealogies. Just the very mention of names and places instruct us always that we're not dealing with legend, that we're dealing with what is purported to be historical fact. So it's not like the people of the East did this, but it's like, Shobal and Zibion and Ana and Dishon and Ezer did these things. It's very clear when these specific names are used and genealogies are presented to us and cities are mentioned and dates and successions are mentioned that the author is intending to convey to us history. And that's instructive to us as to how we should read these things. If there was never any specific names and genealogies mentioned in the Bible, it would bear much more evidently the marks of myth and legend. So genealogies are helpful to us in terms of the historicity. Then there are a couple of things in this passage that are specific to this genealogy which are helpful and instructive to us, which we'll come to in due time as we go. But in many ways it's just the very existence of this genealogy and the placement of it in the book of Genesis, which I think is of particular help and particular importance to us as we make our way through. In other words, I think that the biggest benefit that we're going to draw is not necessarily by examining who begat who and you know what city this one was from and what city that one was from. But I think if we zoom out and look at this genealogy of Esau being placed where it is in the book of Genesis and why it is placed here, that's where we're going to find the most benefit. What we see in the book of Genesis is that when the genealogy of one brother is given, prior to another brother, it's the first brother the genealogy of the first brother serves as the terminus of the record of that brother. In other words, you don't hear any more about him. 
It's the last brother presented to us through whom the story continues. And so you see way back in Genesis chapter 4, a genealogy of Cain. And of course, Cain killed Abel, so we don't read a genealogy of Abel. But at the end of chapter 4, we read that Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. And then in verse 26 of chapter 4, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And then chapter 5 traces out the genealogy of Seth. And that's where the author focuses in. Cain is left behind or or sidelined or pushed to the periphery. And the book of Genesis continues on focusing not on Cain's line, but on Seth's. Then you find in Genesis chapter 9 that Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, each have children. You read about the sons of Japheth, and then you read about the sons of Ham in chapter 10 of Genesis, verses 2 and verses 6, respectively. And then what you find is in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 21, the line of Shem is presented. And so again, Japheth and Ham are sidelined. They're pushed to the periphery. And Genesis goes on to focus on Shem's line. Not Japheth's, not Ham's, but Shem's. Then you go on and you read that Abraham has a son named Ishmael. And then you learn that Abraham has a son named Isaac. And what you find is that we are told about Ishmael's descendants in Genesis chapter 25. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, and it goes on and lists the names. And then... In Genesis 25 and verse 19, we read, these are the generations of Isaac. And again, Ishmael, the one presented first, is sidelined, pushed to the periphery. And the author of Genesis continues to tell the story by focusing not on Ishmael, but on Isaac. What we find now is that we come to the last two statements. These are the generations of whoever, in Genesis. We've seen the generations of Cain, the generations of Seth, the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We've seen the generations of Ishmael and Isaac. And now we come to the final two statements. These are the generations of whoever. And in Genesis chapter 36, the generations of Esau are presented to us. Generations of Esau. These are the generations of Esau. Genesis chapter 36 and verse 1. Then in Genesis chapter 37 and verse 2, we read, these are the generations of Jacob. And so who is the story going to focus on from here? It's Jacob. 
Esau is going to be pushed to the periphery. Esau is going to be pushed to the sideline of the narrative moving forward. What we infer then is that the rest of Genesis, with these being the final two, these are the generations of statements. What we infer then is that the rest of Genesis is going to be about Jacob, or as his name was changed to, Israel. The rest of Genesis is the story of Israel. So is Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and so on and so forth. All the way to Malachi, the rest of the Old Testament is continuing with this narrative that Genesis begins in chapter 37 and verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. These are the generations of Israel. This is the story of Israel. Esau is pushed to the periphery and the rest of the Old Testament tells us the story of Israel. If we recognize that pattern in Genesis and then look here and see Esau's generations juxtaposed with Jacob's generations, that's where we're going to derive the most benefit. If we zoom out from the narrative and see how this fits, that's where we're going to derive the most benefit. It's not necessarily by zooming in and being like, hmm, I wonder who Hemdan's brothers are. Oh, Eshban, Ithran, and Chiran. That's not so much how we're going to derive the most benefit from this, but zooming out and seeing it in its bigger picture. Seeing it as a important part of the plot line in the developing meta-narrative of Scripture. God is now focusing our attention on Jacob's descendants as opposed to Esau's. So what do we see about Esau's descendants as compared to Jacob's? What do we learn from this sidelining of Esau and his generations that is of benefit to us? Well, if we zoom out a little bit, we're going to see some things, and then if we zoom out a lot, we're going to see more. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to zoom out a little bit, talk about that, and then we're going to zoom out even more and talk about that. So if we zoom out a little bit, what we see is Jacob, the one who purchased his birthright from his brother with a pot of stew. The one who deceived his father Isaac to get the blessing. The one whom God appeared to on his way out of Canaan to Padanaram. The one whom, to whom God appeared on his way back into Canaan, coming from Padanaram. This one stays in Canaan. We read in Genesis 37 and verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. In contrast to Esau, who in Genesis 36 and verse 6, took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. 
Many have noted that this is in many ways reminiscent of that incident several chapters ago with Abraham and Lot, where Abraham says to Lot, choose wherever you want because their possessions are too great for them to dwell together. Lot goes one way, Abraham goes another. This is a similar thing, their possessions are too great. What we see though is Esau moving away from the land of promise. It's, it's like, not only has Jacob been given and granted this blessing from God, not only has he been chosen to inherit this blessing from God, not only has Isaac blessed Jacob, but it's like, here Jacob, here Esau has relinquished any right to the blessing, any share in the blessing. He's moving away from the promised land. This is a voluntary choice. Here he goes, knowing that a land has been promised. Knowing that God has promised to deal with Abraham's seed, Isaac's seed, Jacob's seed. Here is Esau moving away from the land and the people that God has chosen to deal with. This is a worldly move, if you will. This is a move not in keeping with true religion, but this is a move in keeping with the overarching desire for temporal blessings and temporal benefits. And in fact, that's what Esau gets from the move. Verse 31 of chapter 36 teaches us that there were kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. They have success as a nation. Edom does before the Israelites do. Now, incidentally, some have said, well, a later author must have come in and said this because there weren't any kings in the time of Moses. And so if Moses wrote Genesis, how could Moses have said that kings reigned in Edom before any kings reigned over the Israelites? Well, that assumes Moses is somewhat of a dunce because Moses has already written that kings are going to come from Abraham's seed and Isaac's seed and Jacob's seed. So all Moses has to do is realize, well, kings haven't come yet and write down. It's not, that's actually not really that hard. So um, this is just, that's just an incidental point. But the critics of scripture are many. And so we should just be well informed about some of these argumentations that are raised. But what we do see is that kings are reigning in Edom before kings are reigning in Israel. In other words, there is a measure of worldly success. Jacob's children are enslaved in Egypt while kings are reigning in Edom. So in the short term, Edom or Esau is blessed and Jacob isn't. In the short term, things work out better for Esau and Edom and for Jacob and Israel. Esau gets really everything he was aiming at. Apparently, he's not concerned about the promises of God. Apparently he's not concerned about the land that's promised. Apparently he's not concerned about the kings and the nations that are promised. Apparently he's not concerned about the seed in whom and through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He just wants somewhere to pasture his flock. He just wants somewhere to raise his kids. So away from the church, as it were, away from the locus of true religion in his day, he moves. In order that he might have a little bit of space stretch out he gets what he wanted 
we see in our day that there are people who make similar moves. They put a little bit of distance between themselves and the true people of God. Seeking nothing really more than temporal blessing. Nothing really more than earthly success. Being too close to the people of God feels cramped and uncomfortable. It impinges on their comfort. It impinges perhaps on their freedom in the sense that maybe one day they wake up and were intending to pasture their flock here, but they find that now they have to pasture their flock here. And so their choices are limited. Their, their comfort is infringed upon. Being in the church is hard. Throwing in your lot with other Christians is hard. It's challenging. It's not always easy to live together. So some people figure, let's just put a little bit of distance between ourselves. Let's find a little place where we can stretch out a little bit. Some people are not so concerned to pay the toll of being among God's people in the land together with those who are heirs of God's promise. They just want a little bit of space, a little bit of comfort, a little bit of blessing here and now. And often they get it. Asaph writes in Psalm 73 about his struggle. When he looks at those who put a little bit of distance between themselves and God's people. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And he goes on and on like this. In our day and age, there are those who leave the land of Canaan, as it were, the land of promise, to put a little bit of distance between themselves and the people of God. And often they seem to prosper. They have no pangs till death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Here we are, slaves in Egypt. And there they are, with kings in Edom. We zoom out a little bit, a little bit. We see that this is the situation of Jacob and Esau. Jacob's lot is harder and more difficult in the short term. Esau's is easier. Jacob, in fact, has lots of family problems moving forward. We're just about to get into the Joseph narrative. Before we even come to slavery in Egypt, he has to undergo all the stress and the emotional anxiety of his perceived loss of his son Joseph and then his stress of parting with Benjamin we're about to get into all that the emotional ups and downs and then the roller coaster when he finds out Joseph's alive after all this time and then they become slaves in Egypt so it's not really an easy path necessarily to be in Canaan heirs of the promise together with God's people 
It's not so simple as like, follow God and everything will go right for you. Follow God and everything will be smooth. Follow God and He will uh, work everything out just so you're not going to have any troubles, you're not going to have any difficulties. It's not always like that. You zoom out a little bit and you see that Esau prospers and that Jacob struggles. So often that's the way that it is. But it's more of a curse than a blessing to be a recipient of temporal blessings and yet lose in the long run. If we zoom out further, we see exactly that that is exactly the situation. We see that in Edom's in Edom, true religion does not flourish. There's no worship of Yahweh, which means there's no salvation. There are no so-called innocent natives in Edom. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What may be known is evident to them from creation, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There is none righteous, no, not one. We know that there is only one name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. That name is the name of Israel's Messiah, Jacob's seed. You separate yourself from Jacob's seed, you separate yourself from the Messiah, you separate yourself from salvation. We see a sobering thing in the sidelining of Cain's descendants, in the sidelining of Ham's and Japheth's descendants, in the sidelining of Ishmael's descendants, and in the sidelining of Esau's descendants. We see a sobering truth that God allows throughout most of the Old Testament age most of the people in the world to perish and to go to hell. Consider that. We read of the sufferings of Jacob's descendants, the sufferings of the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament. Their oppression at the hands of the Midianites and the Philistines and the whoever else, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. We read of their troubles, their short-term troubles. Well, other nations seem to prosper. But these other nations lose in the long run because there is no Messiah in their nation. There's no Messiah promised to their nation. No Messiah promised from the loins of their forefathers, their ancestors. They have cut themselves off, put themselves in an antagonistic relationship, an oppositional relationship to Israel or Jacob. And in doing so, they have put themselves in an antagonistic and oppositional relationship to Jacob's seed, Israel's seed, the Messiah, in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Such are those who try to put a little bit of distance between themselves and that place or that people who are the locus of true religion in our day. The true church of God. 
Such are those who put themselves in an antagonistic relationship, an oppositional relationship to Christ's bride. You cut yourself off from her. You cut yourself off from her Savior. There is a sense in which it's true what the early church fathers said, that outside of the church there is no salvation. That doesn't mean that you're saved by being a church member or that you can't be saved if you aren't. It's simply recognizing that God's promises have been made to a people. God's presence is among a people. There are a people whom God is dealing with. There are a people who gather Sunday by Sunday and in between to worship, to grow, so on and so forth. You intentionally separate yourself from those people, distance yourself from those people. You don't throw your lot in amongst those people. How close can you really be to the head when you take that approach to the body? How close can you really be to the groom when you take that approach to the bride? Many, even in our day, are like Esau, who left the land of Canaan to have a little bit of breathing room. And in doing so, they cut themselves off from the very place, the very people among whom God is at work. They seem to prosper in the short term, and yet in the long run, many perish. We see in the very phenomena of this cutting of oneself off from God's people and thereby the Messiah of God's people. We see something of God's justice. And allowing nations to perish. Think of how many generations went by in the Old Testament era in which the sons of Cain were without a Savior. In which the sons of Ham and Japheth were without a Savior. In which the sons of Ishmael were without a Savior. In which the sons of Esau we're without a Savior. Consider even now how many are outside of Christ Jesus, outside of His church, perishing in this lost world. Consider that. And ask yourself, is it unjust? To answer that question, you have to ask, does God owe them salvation? Does God owe the sons of Cain salvation? Does God owe the sons of Ham and Japheth, Ishmael and Esau salvation? Does God owe each and every person outside of the church salvation? Is it unjust for Him to allow them to perish outside? of those people among whom he is at work. 
We have to say, no, he does not owe. And therefore, he is not unjust. So we see something of God's justice in this phenomena that Cain's descendants are sidelined, Ham's and Japheth's sidelined, Ishmael's sidelined, Esau's sidelined. We see something of God's justice. But if we zoom out further, we see something of God's grace. For the story of Israel is developed throughout the rest of Genesis into Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and so on and so forth through the end of Malachi and then in Matthew chapter 1 a familiar phrase is presented to us. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In other words, these are the generations of. We come across another genealogy. One from the loins of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A descendant of these. We read in Matthew of the one promised in whom, through whom, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. What about the nations that came from Cain? Yes, those nations. What about the nations that came from Ham and Japheth? Yes, those nations. What about the nations that came from Ishmael? Esau? Yes, those nations. Kings shall come from you, God promised to the patriarchs. The kings of Edom, the kings of Israel. Here is the king of kings. And the Lord of Lords. Yet another in fulfillment of that promise. And in this king. Under his reign. In his kingdom. Shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He redeemed for himself. As I say so often. A people. From every tribe. And language. And people. And nation. We read that in the book of Revelation. This descendant of Jacob, this descendant of Israel, redeemed for himself a people from Cain's line, a people from Ham's line, Japheth's line, Ishmael's line, Esau's line. This far descendant of Jacob, 
blesses all the nations of the earth. Sinners in Seth's line and Cain's. Sinners in Shem's line and Ham's and Japheth's. Sinners in Isaac's line and Ishmael's. Sinners in Jacob's line and Esau's may find redemption in and through this descendant of Jacob. He came and lived a perfect life, not for Jews only, but for Gentiles. And Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that He reconciled us both to God together in one body. No longer is God then dealing with one ethnic people group, one biological tribe, but God is dealing with a people, yes, distinguished from those who are not His people, but not distinguished along racial lines, tribal lines, ethnic lines. All the nations of the earth may lay claim to His to citizenship in His kingdom, to blessing under Him. He continues the story. It's not just Genesis to Malachi that tells the story of Israel, but also Matthew to Revelation. And in Matthew to Revelation, we see this plot twist that all of the nations of the earth may have a share in Israel's blessings. That they may own Israel's God as their own God. That they may turn from Dagon and Ashtoreth. Then they may turn from Allah. That they may come to the feet of Jesus Christ and their worship and own Israel's God as their own. And be blessed. So we see, if we zoom out a little bit, we see God's justice. In that the nation of Edom prospers temporally but loses in the long run. And God allows many to perish and to go to hell. We see that that's true not only of Esau but all of the previous family lines that have been sidelined in the biblical narrative. We see God's justice in the short term. That one small little nation out of all the earth is selected to be blessed, to be recipients of God's benevolence, of God's grace, of God's mercy, while all the other nations perish. We zoom out a little bit and we see God's justice. But we zoom out a lot and read the whole story. The whole biblical narrative. And we see that God... Enfolds the descendants of Cain and Ham and Japheth and Ishmael and Esau in his plan of redemption. Eventually, he calls individuals from among those nations his own, as he called Jacob. And his descendants, his own, in a peculiar way, at an earlier stage of redemptive history. We see in the way God has dealt with 
the nations. Both His justice and His grace. Both His righteous and just exclusion of those who will not bow the knee, who will not place faith in Israel's God, in Israel's Messiah. Those who separate themselves from His people and the promises that He's made to them. And yet we see also His willingness to include those who in time see and recognize that there is a God in Israel and who repent and who come and bow before Him and lay hold of Him. As has been famously said, there is only one door. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. No descendants of Cain, no descendants of Ham or Japheth, no descendants of Ishmael or Esau, but no descendants of Seth or Isaac or Jacob. No one comes to me. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is only one door, but it's open. There is only one door, but it's open. And so not only may Seth and Shem and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants come, but also the descendants of Cain and Ham and Japheth and Ishmael and Esau may come. There is only one door, but it's open. If we zoom out a little bit, we see God's justice in dealing with Jacob salvifically while casting Esau aside. But if we zoom out a lot, we see that God's grand plan makes room for the descendants of Esau, the descendants of Ishmael, the descendants of Ham, Japheth, and Cain. Whosoever will, may come.